The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. God does not want us to be in slavery to sin. If you are out of His will even for one moment, it is not because He wants it that way, but because you have chosen to have it that way. God wants you to be with Him in fellowship. God wants you not only that you should be his child, but that you should act like his child. In the second place, not only does God want us to live lives of holiness, but he's made it practically possible that we should live such lives. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Living in Triumph. Imagine you have been taken prisoner by an enemy soldier. You were under his control as long as he points his gun at you. Suddenly your comrade sneaks up and surprises the enemy and you grab his gun. Your adversary is now your captive and under your power. We were once held hostage under our old sin nature, but Jesus has disarmed our old man and has given us the power to live victoriously over sin and triumphantly for His glory. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Living in Triumph. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for the power which thou hast made available for us in Christ so that we as believers need not cower under the power of the enemy, but we may live in triumph, reigning in Christ. Bless the word to each listening heart in this hour, and use it to bring conviction to those who have not been saved, and to bring growth to those who know thee. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My text is in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, that henceforth we should not serve sin for he that is dead is freed from sin. The Christian stands today, the true Christian, the Bible Christian, stands today in the position of one who had been a prisoner under the power of a hateful captor, but who is now freed from that captivity and given the power that makes it possible for him to subdue his former captor. Our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is such that the victory is there for us if we will take it. If we change the figure of speech, we can present it as follows. A person has lived in abject poverty, the slave of circumstances, 
unable to do any of the things desired simply because there were no funds to pay the costs. A miserable existence is accepted, but suddenly there is an intervention on the part of someone who acts in such a way that a vast fortune is placed to the account of the poverty-stricken one, and the freedom of drawing upon that fortune is assured. Now we know that there have been such instances in which the individual went right on living in poverty in spite of the riches which have been made available. The Lord is now telling us that all riches have been made available for us. We need not be in bondage to the old nature of Adam with which we were born. Henceforth, we need not serve sin, for he who is dead is freed from sin. Some of the translations which have been made throw interesting sidelights on our text. The King James Version reads that henceforth we should not serve sin. The older revision reads that so we should be no longer in bondage to sin. Two other translations read that we should be no longer enslaved to sin. Four translators render it that we might be no longer slaves to sin. And Philip's paraphrase reads that the tyranny of sin over us might be broken. Now let us note first that this text shows us beyond any question that the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has the definite purpose and desire that we live lives of holiness, lives that are freed from the tyrannical power of sin. The purpose of our salvation is not merely that we should be saved for eternity, but that we should be kept saved and triumphant in the midst of our life in time. This is the divine purpose for every Christian. If a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is living in the midst of defeat, it is not because God has not made adequate provision for his victory. If a believer is in despair or worry or in flagrant sin of any kind, the fault is not with God. The provision for victory has been made and it is there like money in the bank waiting to be paid to the believer for his present needs. There may be a thousand things for which you pray to which you will have to add the special conditioning clause, if it be thy will, if it be thy will. But when you pray to be kept from sin and to be maintained in the power of victory in a life of holiness, you do not have to add if it be thy will, for it is the will of God that you should thus live. This is formally stated in the first epistle to the Thessalonians. Paul writes to these young believers, and it's good to remind ourselves that this was the very first epistle that was written. That the purpose of their salvation involves holiness of living day by day. The words are these. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound yet more and more. For ye know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Now we shall come back to this text again. But we stop here for the moment to point out this flat statement of fact that the will of God is that we should be sanctified. Now sanctification has one simple meaning. And that is that we should live lives that are apart from the surging streams of this world. And that we should live in the direction of heaven instead of in the direction of this world and its civilization. 
Our aims, our desires, our wishes are to be different. And when this takes place, our practices will be different. It is God's will that believers should be holy and unblameable and unreprovable, walking before the Lord in all well-pleasing. Our English word sanctification is the noun for sanctify. When a verb has the suffix ify, ify, it denotes the quality of action. It means that the thing to which the verb is to be applied is to be made like the verb, to magnify, purify, glorify, edify, mean respectively, magnify to make great, purify to make pure, glorify to make glorious, edify to make into an edifice, to sanctify means that we are to be made holy. For the word sanctify comes from the Latin sanctus, S-A-N-C-T-U-S, which means holy. Many years ago, the word saint was spelled S-A-I-N-C-T, and the C was dropped to make it easier to say. Saint, and it's much easier to say saint. But we've still kept the letter C in the noun sanctuary and in the verb sanctify, and in the noun, sanctification. Very simply, then, I repeat that when God tells us that his will is our sanctification, he's stating that his will is that we should live in holiness. He could not have such a will for us if he had not made that holiness possible for us. Holiness is possible for you and for me, not merely in a general way, not merely in a positional way, but in a specific way, in a practical way. It is possible for us to live in righteousness today. God does not want us to be in slavery to sin. He does not want us to live in this bondage of sin. If you are out of his will even for one moment, it is not because he wants it that way, but because you have chosen to have it that way. God wants you to be with him in fellowship. God wants you not only that you should be his child, but that you should act like his child. In the second place, not only does God want us to live lives of holiness, but he's made it practically possible that we should live such lives. If you ask if any human being has ever come to the place of perfect holiness, we reply immediately that no person has, not even Paul or James or Peter or John. And if they, who had seen the Lord Jesus personally, and had been the witnesses of his resurrection, if they had their moments of turning away from the power of Christ, we may be sure that such a turning will be a part of the lot of every other lesser believer. But in announcing that nobody is going to be absolutely and continually holy, I am not lessening the prospect or diminishing the power. I'm holding up before you a life so wonderful that anything else fades into a drab dullness by comparison. If you have ever lived in complete union with the Lord Jesus Christ for one long moment, you can never be satisfied with anything less as long as you live. It is true that the old nature will take its toll and that there will be periods when you follow afar off, but the memory of those close moments will give you a tantalizing hunger that nothing else in this world will ever satisfy. The method which God has used in making holiness practical is to announce that he looks upon us as having died in Christ 
and as having been raised from the dead with Christ. He then tells us that if we will accept that position by faith, moment by moment, we can have in our condition that which is truly ours in our position. I ask you if it is possible for you to look to Christ and to think of him alone and to live in total yieldedness to his will for the space of one second. If you say that this is true, I will then ask you if it's possible for you to live thus for two seconds. If you accept this, I will lengthen it to five seconds, to 30 seconds, to one minute, to five minutes, to 15 minutes, to one hour, to two hours, to six hours, to 12 hours, to one day, to two days, to 10 days, to one month, to six months, to one year, to 10 years, to 50 years. But immediately, if you ask me if anyone has looked at Christ and lived in his triumph without the shade of unbelief and defeat, for the space of 50 years, I'll reply that I'm absolutely certain that not one being has ever done so. If you'll ask me if someone has thus lived for 10 years, I will still reply that I do not believe it. If you lower the time to months, I will doubt it. And if you lower it to days, I will suspect that there have been moments or seconds where man has looked away from Christ and the flesh has risen to dominate the scene. If you ask me how long it has been in my own life in any one period, I will reply that I do not know, but that I do know that I'm hungry for the periods to be longer and longer, and I'm ever more eager for my fellowship with the Lord to be uninterrupted and for all interruptions to be ended immediately. Practically, I can explain to you how it works, and I can explain to you how we get out of the will of God and how the old nature raises itself up to take its dominating place. I can recall a hundred instances when I have been in the middle of a sermon, for example, preaching, the crowd present listening to me. I've prayed before I began that the message shall go forth in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, that our faith may stand not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I have begun the sermon with the sure certainty that the Lord is with me and that I have the opportunity of bringing blessing to his people. Sometimes I've been preaching for minutes and minutes, and I'm often under the distinct pressure of the Holy Spirit, and I'm aware that I'm an emptied vessel and that his power is flowing through me. Then suddenly, more quickly than I can tell it here, there arises a thought that comes up from my old nature. I may have driven home a point which has caused many people to receive blessing. The minister of Christ is very aware of the flowing forth of power, and suddenly, the old man will claim a part of the credit. It may be a subconscious rising of the thought as an illustration has been given. Boy, that was good. And in that moment, one can feel the difference. In that flash of a second, it's possible to get out of the will of God. It's necessary in such a moment, right while the words of the sermon are being spoken, to cry out to God to cleanse by his blood from all of the thoughts of the flesh. And then the power of God flows once more. I can illustrate this perhaps by something that you've often experienced. We've all seen faucets which have two sources of water, hot and cold. When either the hot or the cold are turned on, they'll flow from the same faucet. Let us call the cold water the cool, fresh flowing of the Holy Spirit that will slake the thirst of a weary people. Let us call the warm water the flow of the fleshly nature of Adam. I get up to preach. And I have a great desire that the warm water shall be completely shut off 
and that nothing shall flow from myself. I have a great desire that the cool, fresh water of the Spirit shall flow. In the last day, we read in John 7, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And now as I preach, I know that the cool streams must flow from him and through me. And as the stream flows, I myself am refreshed. Even as you can feel the faucet grow cold when the cold water is flowing through it. But suddenly, in the midst of the sermon, you have a moment when you feel the faucet getting warm. You've taken some of the credit to yourself. You've thought for a moment that you have some part in it and that some of the blessing could arise from yourself. In that moment, the true blessing starts to go. In that moment, the only thing to do is to glance away to the cross of Jesus Christ and to cry out, sometimes in agony, though in the silence of one's heart and in the flash of a second, that the Lord shall not let the blessing go away, and that above all, you should not run lukewarm because of a mixture of self with that which must come from God. And the Lord hears and answers, and the cold water comes through once more, and the faucet grows cold, and the refreshing stream flows to bless first the speaker and then the listener. Now, if that stream of the flesh is allowed to predominate, the cold water will cease flowing. It is possible for a Christian to grieve the Holy Spirit so that he sits in our hearts in silence and will not come forth in power to bless us. There are Christians who have thus lived for even years at a time, but I can tell you today that it is possible for you to look to God in this hour and that God will send forth the stream again if you will ask him to do so. And if you're willing to see the tap of your own fleshly stream kept off by the strength of the divine flow, Christ died. Our text, which we treated in our previous study, tells us Christ died in order that our old man might be jointly crucified with him and the body of sin be made of none effect in order that the body of sin might be changed from jailer to prisoner, from captor to slave, from dominator to dominated. There will be some who will try to tell me that the rising of the old nature is not tyranny, since that old nature is no longer allowed to reign completely. And they will suggest that what I have said shows that the tyranny of the old nature has in reality been broken in me. I suppose that it has, in one sense, but that will not completely satisfy the one who knows even the fringes of the experience of being possessed by the holiness of God. I want the seconds of triumph to stretch into minutes and the minutes to hours. I want the power of the Lord to flow. I want it to be that when I know nothing except the powerful flow of the Holy Spirit possessing every part of my being, and if I should wake in the morning with some alien thought, I want to bring it immediately into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I want to be cleansed by the finished work of the Lord, and I want the Holy Spirit once more to take complete control. I'm not going to claim any more than I know to be certainly and practically true. You can't do that any more than you can come back from a place you've never been. If anyone should ask me what was the longest period of time that I had been totally dominated by the Holy Spirit, with my old nature maintained on the cross as dead, and the living life of the Lord Jesus Christ in total possession of all my faculties, I would not know how to answer. Pride would rise 
and wish to claim longer periods than are perhaps the truth. Yet, by the grace of God, I can say that there are long periods and that the times of looking away become shorter and shorter. That is perhaps the most important part of the whole truth. The Lord brings you back sooner and sooner from the moments of wandering, and at times the rising of the flesh cannot even come to the place of entrance into conscious thought, but it's put down at once. Perhaps this was the thought of Martin Luther when he once said that he could not keep the birds from flying round his head, but by the grace of God he could keep them from building their nests in his hair. This is the great fact of the life of holiness. The thoughts of the flesh will be flying around even as a flock of birds, but the activity of the Holy Spirit within our lives will bring us to the place where the thoughts cannot come to take lodging. Let us return again for a moment to the text in Thessalonians and complete it, for it furnishes the illustration which God himself has devised. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, we read, and I stopped at that point. But the full verse reads, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Now I'm quite sure that there is something more than the lust of sex that is involved in this text. There is that, of course, and any child could see that the Lord is calling us to live lives of chastity within the relationships which he has given us to maintain in life. But the whole of the Bible presents the Christian as being joined to the Lord in marriage. In the Old Testament, it was Jehovah who was the husband in Hosea 2, and it was Israel who was the departing wife living with the world. In the New Testament, it is Christ who is the bridegroom. And the true church, which is the bride, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We are betrothed unto the Lord. And any failure to remain faithful to him is a spiritual adultery which grieves him and hurts us, whether we know it or not. The reason for judgment upon the ancient people is revealed there where God says in Hosea 2.13, I will visit upon her the days of Balaam when she went after her lovers and forget me, saith the Lord. Now, there are many who need to be reminded of personal cleanness in keeping the body holy and pure, but all must be reminded that the heart and the mind are to be kept holy and pure for the Lord. We're to remember that if we turn away from him and desire worldly recognition or worldly praise or worldly approbation, it is as though a bride sought to please some other man than her husband. And it is thus that Christ would draw us today. He has promised that he shall thus draw Israel one day, and it is thus that he is drawing you and me to himself. Therefore, we continue in Hosea, therefore, behold, I will allure her, the Lord says, and I will bring into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her, and I will give her vineyards from thence, vineyards from the wilderness, and the valley of trouble for a door of hope. Oh, that's the reason why God frequently has to send trouble to many of you is because you've been wandering from him and he wants to bring you back to the place of triumph. And I will give her the valley of trouble for a door of hope and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. That is as the days in which she sang the song of Moses and the Lamb, the song of redemption. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me husband and shall call me no more Baal. 
And it is thus that the Lord is calling all true believers today. It is thus that he's calling you. Recognize that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, it gives you the present privilege of maintaining present holiness and communion with the Lord. And if the communion becomes interrupted, even for the flash of a second, you have the right to look back to the cross and up to the Lord on the throne and to see yourself as having died with Christ and as being alive with him forevermore and thus freed forever from the tyranny of sin. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall speak this word to each heart. We thank thee for the truths that are here. If there be those who have not been born again, we pray thee that thou shalt accompany them with restlessness, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. But upon thine own, dear Lord, who have believed in thee, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide, and a new sense of the wonderful fellowship and joy that is ours and the triumph in Christ. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now until our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. You do not have to live in defeat and discouragement. God has provided the spiritual principles, resources, and power to enable you to live in triumph through Jesus Christ our Lord. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Living in Triumph. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Living in Triumph, or simply ask for message number R6-23. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, This Man and This Woman. The value of marriage and the family is rapidly declining in our culture. The resulting epidemic of divorce and broken families has infested our society and even the church. This free booklet underscores the sanctity of marriage and its vital role in the church and in society. You will understand the true meaning and significance of Christian marriage and find biblical answers to questions about mixed marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Ask for your free copy of This Man and This Woman when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.